Welcome to another episode of Radio Silence, where we're bringing science into focus here on Radio Fodder. My name's Kai, and today I'm joined by Carla and Catriona, and our topic for today is inventions. So, Carla, have you ever tried to invent something? I have tried to invent quite a few things. I couldn't think of them, but as a kid, I used to always make <laughs> things and pretend that they did amazing things. Um, but one thing that me and my sister tried to do is make the whole cups on a string telephone thing work. Oh, yeah. But we unfortunately Classic. weren't successful. So, yeah, <laughs> that was my failed attempt at inventing something that already existed, but in my own, in my own home, sorry. Yeah. What about you, Katriona? Um, well, I've, I've tried making a birthday candle blower outerer. So something that can blow out your candles on your birthday cake without having to use your breath. And it's essentially a reinvented air cannon. <laughs> <laughs> Was this a COVID-inspired invention or pre-COVID? Uh, COVID, COVID-inspired. I saw people using balloons and I was like, yeah, but you blow up the balloons in the first yeah. place. So, you know, yeah, thought about air cannon. There we go. Um, yeah, I once tried to invent this little device for like making secret messages. It had little holes in it and you'd like color in, um, you'd like color in the holes on a piece of paper and it would leave like these secret messages. Ooh, but Secret spy. Wow. It, it never took off, yeah. um, unfortunately. How, how did people know that it was like a secret message in the colors? I mean, there was like a, a, this pattern of dots that you made no sense unless you had the like little card that you wrote the dots with and then you put it over the top and then the letters came like appeared um but yeah it was it was fun for me and no one else (laughs) 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 um yeah so before we get into talking more about some inventions we're gonna get into some news carla would you like to start us off yeah of course so last week during our introductions we talked about how um we spoke many different languages and there's quite a variety amongst us three Um, But one thing that science can't really prove is actually how languages developed. So we do have some working theories and a recent study proposed that we may have actually talked with our hands first before we then Mm. evolved spoken language. And so I personally use my hands quite a lot when I speak. So there actually might be a reason for it. So what researchers did to understand the role hand gestures may have played in the evolution of language Um, They tested whether it was easier for humans to communicate using gestures alone or vocal noises alone, but without using any words. Oh, wow. Yes. And so (laughs) that would be very difficult for me. Um, But the way they actually tested this is by matching 30 Australians with 30 individuals from Ni Vanuatu. And so they've had very little exposure to the Western world. And they were basically about to play a glorified game of charades. So they paired up these participants and they asked them to communicate a series of words by using gestures only. And then they also did it where they were only allowed to use verbal sounds and no words. And what they actually found was that communication was twice as successful when they only used gestures. And this was seen within cultures, so when they had the Australian participants interacting with each other only, and then also when they were interacting with the Ni Vanuatans. 
And they even ran a second experiment where some participants trying to communicate were severely vision impaired. And even in those cases, gestures were more successful. Mm. And so, yeah. And they argued that this might be the case because gestures are universal. Some are more intuitive, like to say up, like you can point up to say, oh, there's something over there. You can point really aggressive, sorry, really (laughs) aggressively at something that is over there. Um, So you don't actually have to be able to speak the same language as someone to understand what they mean a lot of the time. And so this allowed them to speculate that maybe humans first evolved the ability to communicate via gestures, and then they started to add in sounds, and then this later gave rise to languages and the way we speak today. And so obviously, as I said earlier, it's really difficult to discern if this truly is the case, because unfortunately, languages don't leave any fossils like dinosaurs did for us to study later down the line. Um, But I think it's just a really interesting theory. And I guess it got me thinking about how different communication would have been if we never really moved past just using gestures or just using sounds, etc., um, and I guess our show wouldn't really exist if that was the case. <laughs> so, yeah, that was my news for the week. Kind of makes me wonder why there's, like, differences between American Sign Language and Auslan and things like that, you know, with given that gesture should be, you know, it's kind of universal. Yeah. Maybe that's because it's, like, lang- spoken language being converted back into sign language, which is... And also maybe the weird. connotations of different gestures. I don't know. Hmm. I guess if we only spoke in gesture languages, there'd probably still be gesture accents <laughs> yeah. that have devol- like evolved yeah. from different you know, cultural groups. Yeah. Good point. Cool. Catriona, what news have you got? So Carla talked about language, but imagine if you lost your ability to use language or imagine talking to a loved one and, and they just stare blankly back at you because they have absolutely no idea who you are. It's It's quite heartbreaking to think about that. So... I'm talking about Alzheimer's disease, and it's the most common form of dementia with gradual loss of memory, intellect, rational thought, and your social skills. And it affects up to one in 10 Australians over the age of 65 and up, um, and three in 10 once you reach 85. And just the devastating thing is that it's irreversible. So there's absolutely no cure for Alzheimer's disease yet, but some medications and behavioral things that you can do can at least help relieve your symptoms and improve your quality of life. But some good news that was published in Nature last week was that researchers are giving drugs to healthy people in the hopes of preventing the disease altogether. So just for a little bit of background as as to how Alzheimer's works, the brain contains millions of neurons that organize how your brain stores memories and learns habits and and essentially shapes our personality. And these neurons all have to talk to each other via chemical signals. Um, But with Alzheimer's disease, it affects those those cells and those chemicals disturbing your memory and and impairing your thinking essentially. Um, So a few things happen in the brain during disease. And one of the big things is the buildup of amyloid plaque, so amyloid beta, which is a protein, um, and it has a normal function and it's usually okay, but what's happening in this disease is that you're getting a massive buildup. So you're getting heaps of this protein and it's it's literally forming plaque. So if you think about the plaque in your, your teeth, like dental plaque yeah, or anything, it's yeah. just, it's a buildup. Um, and so that's toxic and it, it prevents your cells from sending signals properly when it's outside the cells. Um, but you can also get these protein deposits inside the brain cells as well. And that essentially kills them because it blocks off their their source of food and energy. So this new experimental drug 
is trying to treat that root cause of Alzheimer's before your symptoms even start. So it wants to, it aims to get rid of those toxic proteins so that they can't accumulate. And so what the drug is, are antibodies, and I love antibodies, I'm an immunologist, but (laughs) (laughs) um, essentially when, when people talk about antibodies in therapy and they're used in all sorts of types of therapies nowadays, like cancer therapies and things like that. But essentially antibodies can just be designed to be very, very specific arrows. So if you think about like an archer shooting arrows, these arrows are very, very specific and target a very specific molecule or cell type or whatever it might be. So these are antibodies that are specifically shaped to fit amyloid beta so that it can get rid of amyloid beta um, so that it doesn't clump altogether. So Currently, there are more than 100 trials around the world for dementia treatment, but most are aiming to treat the symptoms rather than that root cause. So this is, you know, really hopefully going to work. And there's a a 43-year-old called Marty who's living in Colorado, and he has a rare genetic mutation that almost guarantees early onset Alzheimer's disease. And, And people with this particular mutation have amyloid beta that's a bit stickier, so you know, he he essentially kind of knows that he'll get it. But he's been injected with this drug every two weeks for nearly nine years and so hopes that this clinical trial might prevent or at least delay the onset of symptoms that's otherwise going to arise and uh, arrive in a few years' time. So fingers crossed for Marty and all the other people. <laughs> what news have you got for us, Kai? So I'm going to talk about some recent like discoveries that Air pollution in India is actually reducing the energy produced by solar panels as much as 52%. Wow. So, given that India is rated fifth in the world for the capacity to generate solar energy, this is a huge amount of wasted potential. And it's, yeah, something that really needs to be addressed if we want to be moving towards um, renewable energies. So... The reason that this is is a problem is because uh, particulate air pollution, so tiny particles in the air, think of like soot, essentially, is literally blocking out the sun. Mm-hmm. And it seems insane that there's that much air pollution that the sunlight is actually being attenuated by so much that, you know, the solar panels just aren't working as well anymore. And there's another mechanism how the air pollution is causing the solar energy generation to be made less effective because it's falling on the solar panels and, you know, settling on them and creating like this layer of soot, which is also blocking out the sunlight. So it's really a double effect of air pollution reducing the effectiveness of solar panels in India. Mm. So the way that they actually were able to determine this and measure the, um, the effects was to combine satellite data and ground observations to to get a better idea of what was happening. So they looked how much light was getting reflected off the air pollution and measuring how much was actually reaching the ground. And yeah, they were able to find out that this is actually a really big problem. But there is good news because if India is able to successfully implement its National Clean Air Project, which has been around for a few years where they want to reduce the air pollution by 20 to 30% below the 2017 levels by 2024. Um, If this is successful, it could provide an extra 6 to 16 terawatt hours of electricity to the country, which is a huge amount that would otherwise be wasted if if this air pollution was 
was still around. Is it getting worse? As as the pollution gets worse, yeah. So they noticed it a little bit when um, COVID happened. Remember, at the sort of start of twenty twenty, air pollution around the world got drastically reduced. Yeah. Um, but after that, it sort of came back again a bit, and yeah, it's something that they're really noticing. So definitely something should be done about. Something should be done about it. Well, that's it for the news. Uh, we're going to get into some topics on inventions right after our first song, which is Technologic by Daft Punk. That was Technologic by Daft Punk, and we've chosen that song because we're talking all about different inventions today on Radio Silence. So, Kai, what invention are you going to talk about? So I'm going to talk about one of the most influential inventions of the 20th century. This is something that underpins so many aspects of modern society. It's it's crazy to think about it. Big claim. You can find <laughs> <laughs> you can find literally millions and billions of these things all around you um, in every piece of modern technology. Uh, you could not be listening to this show without them. I'm talking about transistors. And I don't know what you guys know about transistors. Probably not a lot. Very little. Do you? <laughs> Thinking back to high school physics. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's amazing how important these things are. And yeah, not many people really know what they do. So essentially a transistor is an electronic component. Um, it can act like an amplifier or a switch. Those are the, sort of the two main things that transistors do. And I'll talk about that. Uh, in a little bit more detail later, but first I want to sort of tell the story of of you know electronics essentially and how transistors came about. So in 1906, a device called the thermionic triode was invented, and this was the first device that could act like an amplifier. So you take a small elect or you use a small electrical signal and you can turn it into a bigger one. And this triode was a vacuum tube device. So if you can sort of picture this, it's got this glass tube, kind of like a, a light globe, and inside is a, a vacuum, and it has like some wires and stuff in there. There's a heated filament that actually glows kind of like a light globe, and there's a few other conducting elements as well. So there's the cathode, which when you heat it up, electrodes, um, electrons come off it, and an anode, which is where they go, to create a current. But in the middle, there's a grid. And if you put a voltage on this grid, you can stop the current from flowing. And depending on how much voltage you put on the grid, you can actually like vary the amount of current that flows through this device. So the way this can be used as an amplifier is if you get a small electrical signal and you use that to vary the grid voltage, you can actually modulate the output current. So it, the output current like reflects the input uh, voltage, but can be higher current or higher, so higher single signal. So this is how you could amplify a small electrical signal using a device like this. And this was revolutionary. So essentially this triode being invented was the beginning of the electronics age. So without it, we wouldn't have never have invented radios. So in the early 20th century, um, radios started coming into being and they all had these vacuum tubes in them. 
And another place where you'd find these vacuum tube uh, electronics is in audio equipment. And it's kind of funny that this is one of the few places that you still might find them. So if you think about like maybe in guitar amplifiers, some have like particularly kind of older ones have vacuum tube amplifiers in them or like audiophile level, really expensive um, stereos and stuff will still have vacuum tubes. Um, And this is sort of a matter of personal preference. There's a bit of debate over whether they sound better or not. Um, I'm not going to start that here, but (laughs) some people really care about this sort of thing. So you do find them around um, the place a little, like, still. But there's a reason why you don't find them everywhere, and that's because vacuum tubes are bulky. They take up a lot of space. Like, they're glass bulb things, like, are quite big, and they, yeah, just not very useful to have a lot of them. And they also need a lot of power. So you've got this little heated filament inside them and you need to be providing that with a lot of power to actually heat it up until it's glowing. So they're not very scalable. You can't have lots of them. Otherwise, you're going to run out of space and you're going to need a stack of power just to really, you know, to get them going. So that's when the transistor came in and completely changed the game. It was first developed in 1947 and received a Nobel Prize in 1956 because that's how big of a deal it was. And instead of being made from big glass light globe things with bits of metal in them, it was made out of semiconductors. So these are elements like silicon or germanium, and they kind of act kind of like a metal conductor and kind of like an insulator somewhere in between. And that's what makes them very useful for actually doing electronics so you can manipulate them uh, very specifically to do what you want to do with them and the way that that's done is if you put other elements in the silicon or germanium and in a process it's called doping so you put different elements inside the silicon and it changes its electronic properties so if you do this you can create uh, semiconductor transistors which use much less power and much smaller than the previous vacuum tubes that they're replacing. So you could have much, much more, which meant you could make your like devices heaps more complex in a smaller space and using less power. So now I'm going to talk a little bit about how they actually work. So as I said before, doping changes the electronic properties. And a, a transistor is essentially... A sandwich of doped semiconductors and you have different types so there's p-type and n-type and if you put one type on the outside so the bread of your sandwich and the other type on the inside you can make a transistor and the way this works is because of the properties of the two different types of semiconductor current can't travel through them normally or well in one case in the other case it can always travel through but let's just pretend in in The case I'm going to talk about, no current can flow. So you've got this sandwich and the electric current can't get from the top to the bottom. But that changes when you put a small amount of current into the middle section. And what that does is allows a larger current to flow. So just the same as the vacuum tubes before, you're using a small signal to generate a much bigger signal. And that's how you create an amplifier. So these transistors work the same way, but 
because you can make them much, much smaller and they use way less power, they're so much more versatile. And this was de like demonstrated by the invention of the transistor radio, which first came out in 1954 and was really successful because of two things. One, they were really portable. So previous vacuum tube radios were really big and bulky, used a lot of power. You couldn't put them in your pocket and carry them around and have radio wherever you went. And they're also really cheap. So you could make lots of them. Everyone could have one. And it was because of the transistor radio, among other things, that transistors themselves became immediately popular. You know, everything had to get transistors. And it, you know, was this explosion of technology. And we've so far, we've basically been talking about transistors acting as amplifiers, but it turns out that in modern technology, they tend to be more like switches most of the time. So if you think about it, if you make your amplifier only have like two levels of input, so it's like no signal and the amplifier's, the amplifier's nothing, or like one maximum signal and the amplifier turns on the maximum, you know, you've got like a switch. So you can turn on the current using this small signal. And this is how you create a digital switch, which is the basis of modern computers. So if you put several transistors together, you can form a logic gate. So these are things that um, can do logical operations like AND or OR. So let's say you've got two switches and if both switches are on, the output switch turns on and stuff like that. So it's these logic gates that are the building blocks of computers. So if you string together a whole bunch of logic gates, you can make it, you know, become a processor. So it actually does something based on just these logical and statements and things like that. So we're using stacks and stacks of transistors. You can build up a whole computer or, you know, all of modern technology just essentially using a whole bunch of transistors. And yeah, I think that's why they've got to be one of the most important inventions of the 20th century. <laughs> there you go. And so, I didn't even yeah. put much thought into them. So, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Well, um, thanks for telling us all about transistors, these really, really important things that are in everything. Um, so speaking of transistors, we've got this song now, Transistors by Isaac Delusion. Welcome back to Radio Silence, where we're bringing science into focus. That was Transistors by Isaac Delution, and today we're talking about inventions. Take it away, Katriona. Thanks, Carla. Well, did you know that Hollywood and World War II played a pivotal role in the creation of our current wireless technologies? <laughs> <laughs> um, well... If you didn't, <laughs> I'm going to share the story of the incredible inventor and movie star, Hedy Lamarr, and um, a, a quote that she said in, in 1990, which I, I really like, is that the brains of people are more interesting than the looks, I think. Um, <laughs> but for much of her life, people didn't see past her beauty and Hollywood fame. Um, so for those of you who don't know her, she was in Oscar-nominated films, um, but her most lasting legacy is her frequency hopping technology that essentially became the precursor to GPS, Bluetooth, and Wi-Fi that's, you know, used by billions of us around the world. Maybe it's not so, you know, 
everywhere and ubiquitous like uh, transistors, but, you know, it's still pretty big (laughs) and everywhere. Yeah, it's definitely important technology. Yeah. So I first wanted to talk a little bit about Hetty's life story because that's it in itself is quite remarkable. So she married, she was born in Austria and married her first husband in 1934 at the age of 19, but the marriage was quite unhappy and she, she wasn't really happy being married to like an affluent and domineering munitions manufacturer. Um, mm. So fled her home by bicycle in the middle of the night, <laughs> <laughs> um, which I just love. And then she immigrated to the US um, in the lead up to World War II and caught the eye of MGM studio head, Lewis Mayer, like on the ship from London to New York. Oh, wow. Um, so, yeah, was was scouted on the boat. Um, and so then she settled to life in Beverly Hills and socialized with, you know, the, the, the top dogs the, <laughs> and the luminaries, including John F. Kennedy, actually, and Howard Hughes. And they provided her with equipment to run experiments in her trailer during downtime from acting. acting. So, like, literally in between takes, she was experimenting <laughs> and inventing. Yeah, so, like, she had a setup at home, but, like, it was in the trailer that, that she did a lot of stuff. Um, wow. So That's the that dream. was, yeah. <laughs> 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 uh, just multitasking. Um, and it was kind of in that environment, like, in the trailer, between takes, um, but sort of a more scientific environment that, that she really found her true calling. Um, so Howard Hughes was a businessman and pilot and, and took her to his airplane factories and showed her how the planes were built and introduced her to the scientists behind the process. And so that kind of inspired her to um, innovate because Hughes wanted to create faster planes that could be sold to the U.S. military. Um, so she literally just bought a book of fish and a book of birds and looked at the fastest of each kind and then combined the fins of the fastest fish with the wings of the fastest bird to sketch a new wing design for the planes. Um, so that was like wow. early biomimicry. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that was um, one of, of the her incredible inventions. But um, in 1940, she met a film score composer at a dinner party um, who kind of had that same inventive spirit. So like, you know, has that artistic day job, but then you know, wants to invent by night, um, and that's George Antheil. And they discussed the, the coming war. And then also, because remember, Hetty was married to a munitions manufacturer, so she had that knowledge around munitions mm. from her first marriage. So the two, so Hetty and George, came up with an extraordinary um, new communication system uh, with the intention of guiding torpedoes to their targets in the war. And the system involved the use of what we call frequency hopping among radio waves. Um, so essentially the, the transmitter and the receiver could hop to, to new frequencies together. And so by doing that, you can prevent the interception of the radio waves. So it allows torpedoes to find the target. Um, so essentially the, their radio communications could hop from one frequency to another so that the allied torpedoes couldn't be detected by the Nazis. And yeah, that essentially became the precursor to wireless. But yeah, how did that become the wireless system that we <laughs> use today? Um, so I wanted to talk a little bit about Wi-Fi and Bluetooth, and, and both of these use radio waves. So it, it's that idea of, of going to like a unique or the same radio signal. 
So we can actually think, um, thank CSIRO or CSIRO um, here in Australia for our Wi-Fi, actually. So yay, Australian thing. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> um so a Wi-Fi signal is essentially a high-frequency radio signal. So a lot of you are probably familiar with how Wi-Fi kind of works. You've got your router, which is physically connected to the internet by your Ethernet cable. But then that router broadcasts that high-frequency radio signal and then that carries data um, to and from the internet. And the adapter in whichever device you're using picks up and reads that signal from the router and then also you know, sends it sends data back um, through it onto the internet. But back in the 1990s, they kind of had this technology, but there were no wireless devices because um, everything was still just relying on fixed wires. And at the time, major communications companies around the world were trying and trying to introduce wireless networking technology. But what they were struggling with was a really, really big problem um, called reverberation. So that occurs when the radio waves were bouncing around in confined spaces. So like, if you can imagine, you, you just, like all three of us are like using um, wireless, presumably like in our rooms, we've got walls around us, we've got furniture. And so the radio waves were just bouncing around and that caused an echo that distorted the signal. So then um, Saro cracked it while um, doing radio astronomy research, actually. So their solution was to replace a large single radio wave with lots of smaller waves sent in parallel. And so these smaller waves were less prone to that interference. And because the signal was duplicated many, many times, there was a much greater chance of the waves making it to their intended destination. Um, so if you want sort of an analogy to think about it, the change is kind of similar to replacing a wide single lane road with a multi-lane highway. So um, lots of lanes trying to trying to get to the same place. Um, so then essentially they, you know, sent multiple signals and smaller signals and then just sort of pieced it back together at the end destination. Um, so in terms of the frequencies and how it all works, so Wi-Fi uses these radio waves to, to transmit information between your device and, and the router via frequencies. And I've been talking about that word a lot. Um, and two radio wave frequencies are used depending on the amount of data that you're sending. So you've got 2.4 gigahertz and five gigahertz. Um, and but what does that mean though? Mm -hmm. Well, a hertz is essentially just a measurement of frequency. So, for example, let's say we're all just relaxing and, and sitting on a beach um, and, and you're just watching the waves crash into the shore. If you measure the time between each wave crash, you'll be measuring the frequency of the waves. And, and one hertz is a frequency of one wave per second. And then one gigahertz, on the other hand, is one billion waves per second, which <laughs> much, doesn't- Much, much faster. Yeah, much, much faster, not as relaxing <laughs> if you're watching this on the beach. Um, but essentially, the higher the frequency, the greater the amount of, of data transmitted per second. That's why, you know, people like that 5, 5G, when you're looking at the, the wireless and you've got two different Wi-Fis, you're like, the 5G one, please. Mm -hmm. um, so- which is not the same as 5G as in like 4G and yes, 5G. Yes, that's true. That is true. And it's not what you get when you get a COVID vaccine. But, but <laughs> <laughs> different thing altogether. Um, but if if you load a web page um, on the internet, your request is 
essentially translated into a bunch of ones and zeros in binary code. And then if you're using Wi-Fi to get that, these ones and zeros are translated into wave frequencies by a little Wi-Fi chip that's embedded in your device. And then the frequencies travel across those radio channels that I mentioned, so across those frequencies and are received by your Wi-Fi router that your device is connected to. So that's kind of how Wi-Fi works. Um, and then in terms of Bluetooth, the main difference for Bluetooth is that it's um, you're, you're connecting devices directly with each other. And rather than sending traffic through an in-between device like you've got with the wireless router, um, it's it's direct. And this makes life very, very convenient um, because it, it keeps power use low and improves your battery life and things like that. Um, so these Bluetooth devices communicate using low power radio waves on a frequency band between 2.4 gigahertz and, and 2.483 gigahertz. So um, it's, it's um, you know, much closer together and, and lower. So Although many people, but but a fun fact is that although many people think Bluetooth is kind of a short range technology, it can be used to connect devices more than a kilometer apart if oh, you choose oh, wow. it. Like, you know, obviously you have to optimize it, but it can be. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, with Bluetooth, Wi-Fi, we can thank Hedy, Hedy Lamar for all of these things. <laughs> I just... Yeah, Bluetooth is one thing that just continually blows my mind. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, we talked a lot about radio waves, and that is a nice segue into the song we're about to play, which is Radio Waves by Eli Young Band. You're listening to Radio Silence, where we're bringing science into focus here on Radio Fodder. You just heard Radio Waves by Eli Young Band, and today we're talking about inventions. And Carla, what have you got? So today I'm going to be talking about an invention that honestly up until about two days ago, I didn't fully understand. Um, <laughs> and for a kid that grew up watching a lot of air crash investigations, I sh probably should have known a lot more about this topic, um, which is airplanes. How do they work? How did they come to be? So the sheer size of airplanes is hard for me to comprehend, and I've been fortunate enough to travel overseas many times before, but I'm still always taken aback about just like how massive they can be. Yeah. Um, so it's not so much that I don't understand how they work, it's more that I'm just amazed that they can exist. Yeah, I just find yeah. them really incredible. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the largest passenger airline is the Airbus A380, um, but these are actually getting discontinued because airlines were not putting in enough orders for them, even though they can accommodate a lot of extra features like passenger lounges and bars and all the fancy, fancy things. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so I'm going to talk about Boeing 747s instead just because they're more common. And I think most of us would have been exposed to them more. Um, so have either of you, Katrina or Kai, flown in a Boeing 747 before? I don't think so. No. I've been on a 737 and a 787, oh, but not a 747. I can't say I've paid that much attention. <laughs> no, fair enough. Fair enough. It's the, um, the classic jumbo jet, though, the 747, Yeah, right? yeah. Yeah. Um, so I'm just going to run through some numbers to try and just paint the, their scale. So Boeing, seven so sorry, Boeing 747s um, are generally 71 metres long. They have a wingspan of about 60 metres and they can carry up to 467 passengers. 
They weigh a shy 162,000 kilograms, but that's only when they're empty. Um, and they can actually have a maximum takeoff weight of 333 tons, which wow. I found interesting because they're very strict with their baggage weight allowances. So I don't know where we're drawing the line. I think that's but... a um, money thing. Is that a money yeah, thing? Yeah, probably. Uh, maybe. Yeah. But they also can take up to 183,000 litres of fuel. So maybe that is where That's um, the where weight is coming from. from. <laughs> yeah. And they can also reach um, to speeds of about 123 kilometers, sorry, kilometers per hour. So not only are they incomprehensibly large, they're also incredibly fast. And the reason why they're able to get this big and speedy is because of two things. So their wings and their engines. So I'm going to start with their engines and how they work. So the blades of their engines speed at, sorry, spin at a really high speed and compress and squeeze air. And then that compressed air is then sprayed with fuel and an electric spark lights up the mixture. And then this um, mixture of burning gases expands and it blasts out through the nozzle, which is at the back of the engine. And so as the jets of gas shoot backward, the engine and the aircraft are thrust forward. So this is what thrust is, um, the um, forward direction, pushing or pulling force that, um, yeah, is developed by the aircraft's engine. I thought it was just a dance move. That too. <laughs> that, that is also thrust in a different context. Um, and then so coupled with the wings, so what the wings do is um, they're basically shaped to make air move faster over the top of the wing. So the front edge is rounded and the back edge is more pointed. And so this allows um, air to move faster over the top of the wing. And when the air is moving faster, the pressure of the air decreases. So the pressure on top of the wing is less than the pressure on the bottom of the wing. And this difference in pressure creates a force on the wing that lifts the wing up into the air. And that upward force is called lift, which I think is a great um, explanation of what is actually going on. Um, Very descriptive. And yeah, exactly. And um, so it's the force that overcomes the plane's weight and actually keeps it in the sky. And there are actually a lot of things that affect just how much, a li- how much lift a wing creates. So the size and shape of it, um, the angle that it's meeting the oncoming air, the speed it's w- at which it's moving through the air, and then even the density of the air. And there's also one other aerodynamic force at play when we're talking about how planes work, and that is drag. And so drag is the force that opposes an aircraft's motion through the air, and it's generated by um, every part of the airplane, so even the engines. So in summary, the engines move the plane forward at a really high speed, and the wings are what move the air, sorry plane upward, and so that's why they can stay up in the air. And so I'm probably, you're probably thinking just like I was, well, how did we even get to this stage? How did these incredible aircrafts come to be? Well, it all started in 1903 with the first powered aircraft, which was flown by Wilbur and Orville Wright, and I love their names. Um, and it had wings and it had an engine and propellers, and this is what allowed them to fly a whopping 37 metres and stay in the air <laughs> for 12 seconds. <laughs> Yay. Um, but only two years later, they were able to get a plane to fly for a whole 39 minutes. And funnily enough, they would actually disassemble their plane in between use. So no one could copy their design, which I think was very smart (laughs) back in those days. 
And then in 1908, they finally got a contract that allowed them to fly their first passenger, which is a big milestone, I think, for flight. And then in 1914, along with World War I, came a demand for military aircrafts, um, which contributed to the development of faster airplanes with greater flight range. And so a German engineer called Hugo Junkers des- um, designed an aircraft called the Junkers J-1, and it was actually the first aircraft to have an all-metal frame, which is really important um, for the later development of larger passenger aircraft because this is the design that they followed. And so people started thinking about the commercial use of airplanes and not just use for military purposes, um, which actually brought a about the first passenger flight, which was a 20-minute flight between St. Petersburg and Tampa in Florida, which was very short and sweet. Um, (laughs) But eventually we did see greater distances travelled, like the first transatlantic flight, which took place in 1919. And so finally in 1936, we started seeing profitable commercial flights with the Douglas DC-3 aircraft, which looks very similar to the jets that we have today. And these intended to carry passengers only, so they weren't also carrying mail or cargo in order to be profitable. And 11,000 of these were actually made. And interestingly, in 2020, there was still 120, sorry, 172 in operation. So they're still around. Wow. Yeah. And what I kept thinking, I don't thinking, know if I'd want to be on a plane that old. No, I don't think <laughs> I don't think they're using it for passenger flights yeah. anymore, but they still exist. So, yeah, but at least cool. they're not just like a collectible item; like it, they're, they're still in use. Yeah, true. They're still yeah around and kicking, which is good. I guess <laughs> it's like those cars. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and what I kept thinking when I was reading about, like, the evolution of aeroplanes is just how quickly the technology was being developed. Like, in 30 years, we went from barely staying in the air to large-scale international travel, so it was a really short time frame. So I guess that brings me to the jet age, which started in 1952, and this is where we moved away from propellers and started to use jet engines instead. So jet engines can fly a plane faster between destinations, and so an aircraft with jet engines will burn the same amount of fuel that a slower propeller plane would in um, a longer period of time. So for longer journeys, jet engines are just way more fuel efficient, and they're more efficient at higher speeds and high altitudes, whereas propellers are more efficient at slower medium speeds and then at lower altitudes. And so your jet engines are what your Boeing 747s and your Airbus A380s use to get off the ground. So airplanes have allowed the world to become our oyster. They've allowed us to see places we wouldn't have otherwise. And we're more connected now than ever with over 40,000 airports around the globe. And there's almost half of those are in the United States alone. So we've got a lot (laughs) of flights going a lot of different places. Wow. Yeah. And to think over time, we've gone from having 25 million tourist arrivals in 1950 to 1.4 billion international arrivals per year, only 68 years later. So it's a 56 fold increase and just shows like the ingenuity and time that went into creating such an invention has definitely not gone to waste. Um, But I guess it wouldn't be fair if I didn't talk about the limitations of this invention. And I think the big one for aeroplanes is that there is the environmental impact. So the emissions from the planes contribute to climate change. They burn fossil fuels, which 
release carbon dioxide into the atmosphere and then that contributes to the greenhouse effect. Um, but also with planes, there are some non-carbon effects as well, such as the formation of vapor trails and cloud formation, which occur because these aircrafts are operating at such a high altitude. Um, but it's not all grim. I'm not suggesting we don't travel because we do continue to explore new alternatives to jet fuel. So some things that have been proposed or trialed include using feedstocks from plants, plant and animal oils, biogas, biomass and conversion of sugars derived directly from plants or from hydrolyzed biomass. Um, so yeah, we've definitely come a long way in jet technology. Um, we no longer have to just envy our bird friends from the ground. <laughs> um, but I think we still have a long way to go in terms of the sustainability of them. And I think if we've already come this far in 100 years, I wonder where we'll be in the next 10 years. So yeah, that sounds maybe really we go promising. to space. <laughs> Yeah. Cause have you ever done like you calculate your carbon footprint? I'm too scared to. <laughs> if you add in flights, <laughs> like it goes am. up so yeah. much. Yeah. yeah. If you add a flight and it's like boom, so high. Yeah. yeah. And considering, because I was born in Croatia, so I go back every like three years, and that is a whole day of travel, and it mm. is your big airlines that you're flying with. So yeah, it would be interesting fuels. to calculate, but. Yes, And I definitely. think hi hydrogen is another possibility mm, for aeroplanes, particularly because mm. it's light. Yeah. But it has drawbacks because you need a heavy tank to keep it in, but mm. it's an option. Yeah. So we'll see what happens, I guess. Yeah. Well, thanks for that, Carla. That's all the time we've got for today's episode on inventions. Remember, you can check us out on... Um, SoundCloud and all the podcast platforms and follow us on Twitter at Radio Silence. We're going to finish up with one last song, Big Jet Plane by Angus and Julia Stone. <laughs>